0: Hey folks, you're listening to Know the Land, broadcasting from the treaty territories of the Mississauga of the Credit on 93.3 FM at the University of Guelph. Maybe you're listening to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to your podcasts. It's a show about our connections with the land base, how we interact with the land, how we learn about the land, how we defend the land. My name is Byron, and today I just want to share a bit of a species profile. And I've done this on previous shows, and some people say they like them, so that's good. Um, what these shows do is they help me understand a species more thoroughly. And there are certain species that catch my eye, like a friend just called and said, oh, who made this hole, and sent me some pictures. And we were on the phone looking at pictures of this maybe one centimeter hole into his wooden siding, and while he was there, he said, like, whoa, it just flew by me. And a large bee with a shiny butt flew by and I was like, Oh, Xylocopa, Xylocopa. And we looked it up and that was it. A carpenter bee. And so it's like, maybe next week it's gonna be carpenter bees that I'm gonna be researching, just because anytime a species that comes up catches my attention, I'm like, okay, I don't know very much about that. I wanna learn more. Or sometimes it's someone I have a long standing relationship with. I might do a whole show on wild leeks or or uh wood thrush is one of the older shows. This time I wanted to talk about chokecherries. And I've been working on this uh species profile about chokecherries because I love them. I've been eating them for years, I've been watching them grow, I've been learning how they interact with the land base through observation, but I don't know much of the science or how to describe them or how I would elaborate on them and i think that i want to pay more attention to them and so this spring so far and i'm sure into the summer and into the fall and likely into the winter i'm going to be paying a lot more attention to the choke cherries this year and like i said i've been working on this, this blog post species profile thing um also trying to encourage students of mine to be writing their own species profiles and then branching out from there, looking at different associated species, uh, other folks that are within this species uh, community. And a few posts back, a few blog posts back, I mentioned that I was watching a chokecherry, um, looking at the Eastern tent caterpillar and looking at the egg masses and how the caterpillars emerged. But through that process, I ended up paying a lot closer attention to the choke cherries as well. And so I ended up writing this big thing about the choke cherries. And I want to share it, but there's also some little things that I didn't write about. And so I would say if you want to learn more, I would say go back to the blog, www.toknowtheland.com, and look up the post. I think it's just going to be called Considering Choke Cherries. And there'll probably be more information than I'm going to offer now because these these posts aren't static luckily I can go back and rewrite them or add to them and everything I learn about chokecherries I will add to this post eventually creating an epic novel of of chokecherry life history so as as I learn more and more and more um yeah and there's some discoveries that I've been just thinking about more currently, some are like leaps of and wonders. They're not really knowings yet, but there's observations I've been making about other relationships going on with the choke cherries and seasonality and phenology. So I will get into those later, but I want to start. Oh man, I got I have to say I'm so sorry. On the website to know the land dot com, there's really nice photographs that I've been taking over the past few years. Either when I did my fruit and seed study, um, when I find seeds and scat, I can understand what they are based on these fruit and seed studies and like uh, plant studies. And I'm not good at a lot of things, but some I, when I'm passionate about something, I take the time to do it and I take the time to try and do it right. And my study of the chokecherry cherry the, through photographs has been pretty good. And I've taken a ton of them and I've been able to choose well, so... It's worth looking at, and I'll share some of them on the Instagram as well. So maybe you'll see it there at, at to know the land. But yeah, let's just start with chokecherry, uh, Prunus virginiana, or the Moan name, Asasawieman. I think I'm getting that right, Asasawiman. Um And again, like I noticed that through looking at the Eastern Tent caterpillar, Malacosoma americanum the egg masses and how the caterpillars had emerged from these egg masses and started making their, their webs in the crotches of the chokecherry. And then in the days following, my interest had been picked on, on the chokecherry. So chokecherries are in the rosaceae, the rose family, um, which are usually typified by having regular flowers, uh, with five sepals, five petals, a bunch of stamens and, and, and uh, usually, Stamens and styles, uh, most often with serrated leaves, usually a single pistil, at least in the chokecherry context. I think there is there is a single pistil. Um, there's, this is a diverse family found throughout the world. The more species are in the Northern Hemisphere. Rose family members are also mostly perennial species. Chokecherry abides by all these previous descriptors, you know, the serrated edges, five petals, five sepals, a bunch of stamens and styles, serrated leaves. It's a perennial. So chokecherry fits right into the rose family. And other rose family members include uh, apples, hawthorns, raspberries, chokeberry, the aronia, chokeberry, serviceberry, and mountain ash. Uh, Chokecherry, is also in the Prunus genus, uh, Prunus Virginia, virginiana again. And this is shared with American plum, Prunus americana, black cherry, Prunus seratina, pin cherry, Prunus pensylvanica, and domestic sweet cherry, uh, Prunus avium, and sour cherries, Prunus cerasus. All these members of the genus contain amygdalin and prunacin, Substances which break down in water to form a hydrocyanic acid, cyanide, also known as cyanide, or prussic acid. And while many of the older books and resources that I've looked at caution around using these plants uh, for food and medicine, newer sources suggest that with consideration, working with the bark and berries, the leaves I'll get into later, medicinally or for food should be safe, but these are all things to consider. A bit of a description on the plant, uh, the habitat and range found in mixed thickets, trail sides, drier exposed sites, as well as river banks, edges of woods and swamps, railroad embankments. But the main ones I'm really observing right now um, are on trail sides, in mixed thickets, dry open exposed site adjacent to a river. Um, but yeah, they're pretty suited to go anywhere they're an understory plant they can be the understory of a thick mature forest um, and it ranges all over from from newfoundland to british columbia south to california and north carolina i saw on i sightings up to fairbanks alaska so although there are big pockets there where it gets extra cold in the winter and it's it's it's, it's not going to be there but it is a native species there's a western chokecherry there's a uh, Eastern chokecherries there's some subfamilies as well, or pardon me, uh, variations or subspecies, not subspecies, varieties. That's what I was saying. Varieties. Size and form: they're alternately branching, suckering shrub or small tree, up to ten meters tall. They're usually about two to three mil- meters, two to three meters. The trunk is about five to ten centimeters in diameter. Branches are smooth, with dark red to grayish brown bark with showy lentic- lenticels horizontally um, arranged lenticels. A strong odor, almond-like when scraped. The twigs have terminal buds and uh, the chokecherry can live for about 20 to 30 years, though some recording, some have been recorded up to 40 years. In regards to the bud and the leaf scar, the buds are a deep, rich brown, fading to pale at the margins of the bud scales. And it looks like I haven't updated the leaf scar. But if I remember correctly, the leaf scar has got three veins or so three vascular bundles. And it's sort of like a inverted boomerang uh, underneath the bud. Leaves are simple, deciduous, wide, sharp-toothed, egg-shaped leaves with a hairless midrib. Although some people have recorded uh, a hair, hairs white hairs on the midrib or the mid vein going up the leaf. 4 to 12 centimeters long, 2 to 6 centimeters wide, narrowing at the tip. Stocks are about 0.5 to 2 centimeters long uh, with glands near the base of the blade. And I would offer that they're long I've seen longer uh petioles or leaf stalks on some of the newer newer growth. So if it's a newer shoot, that's when I tend to see longer uh, petioles. But this is just memory and and that can be mistaken easily. So don't take my word for that part. Flower, it's arranged in a long drooping dense cluster along the central stem at the terminal end of branches. And the flowers are small, the petals are roundish and white. And in my area, the petals are starting to fall now. Uh, They blossom early. Uh, the fruit is a dark red purple cherry and I'll, I'll explain a little bit more about the fruit later, but they get to a nice, beautiful, purpley black, it's so nice. I love, I love the color of them. Fruit is ripe, uh, early August to September. And when we think of the size of the seed, it's about five millimeters long, just a little bit longer than it is wide. Um. Yeah, maybe five, maybe six millimeters long, maybe about four millimeters wide. And it's similar, maybe superficially similar to a popcorn kernel, but it's more rounder and a bit larger than a popcorn kernel. And maybe I would even say, like, popcorn kernel meets a football almost or an egg you got to see one, maybe. That's why I have the photos on the, on the website. But I'm just going to do my best with this. Uh, the, the fruit is a droop, as in it's a seed. A droop is a seed contained within a hard shell surrounded by a fleshy exterior. So a droop is a seed contained within a hard shell surrounded by a fleshy exterior. The seeds, the twigs, the leaves contain the building block compounds of hydrogen cyanide, which is poison for many species, including humans. The wilted or frost-damaged leaves especially demonstrate this poison quality. Um, an average of 11,500 seeds per kilogram, just to get you an idea of, of the size and weight of those seeds. Similar species would include black cherry, serotina, and it can be confused with chokecherry when it's young. They both have those tubular flower clusters, uh, the inflorescence of similar shape and size. So the black cherry inflorescence are looser clusters while the choke cherries are dense clusters. And I was out on a trail with my partner recently uh, looking up into the canopy with my monocular, trying to see the choke cherry or trying to see the black cherry um, inflorescence from the ground and they weren't even blossomed yet. The, the, the flowers weren't out yet. And the chokecherry blossoms were full, full bloom. So the black cherry blossoms later than the chokecherry does. Both species have leaves are toothed and tapering, but the black cherry leaf is widest below the middle, has a longer tip, and has rounded teeth. While the chokecherry is broadest above the middle, has sharp teeth, and is more oval in form. The black cherry leaves tend to have a whitish to rusty colored hairs growing along the midrib of the leaf, while the choke cherry doesn't. Although I have read accounts where people describe it as having a, a, a hairy midrib, but I haven't seen that. When mature, black cherry can reach about heights of 22 meters, 72 feet and have a flaky bark appearing like burnt cornflakes. And I think that's one way people remember it, a mnemonic, burnt cornflakes, black cherry. Uh, While the chokecherry usually grows up to about two to three meters, six to 9.8 feet, and rarely more than 10 meters, 32.8 feet. And is kind of reddish brown to gray for that mature chokecherry bark. Something that I got turned on to by uh, the book Wild Urban Plants of the Northeast by Peter Del Tredici was the idea of the ecosystem function. What, what role does this species have on the ecosystem beyond human considerations? Or maybe in, in consideration of oh, like if humans are caring for the landscape, maybe they're curious about this as well. But what is the role that this plant is playing on their ecosystem? And there are drought heat and fairly cold tolerant so drought tolerant heat tolerant and fairly cold tolerant and somewhat salt tolerant at least in lab experiments and in regards to that choke cherry is an ideal species to be reclaiming disturbed lands amidst climate change um if you think of like drought heat extreme colds and then heat extreme heats uh huge downpours but then not a lot of water for a long time which my my local area that's what it seems to be turning into huge downpours soil so compacted because it hasn't rained for such a long time the water drains off quickly and easily and we'll get into more about how chill serves to to mitigate that that those harsh new realities of climate change but the USDA describes chokecherry as an excellent shrub for providing thermal cover and erosion control in fisheries. The roots of chokecherries may extend down into the soil about 1.8 meters or 6 feet or more. And horizontally, these roots spread to about 10.6 meters, 10.6 meters, 35 feet or more. A thicket of chokecherries may be a single plant, a genet, and which has sent up many aerial stems, or the ramets, similar to like uh, Solidago, like uh, the, the, the goldenrod, or strawberries. One plant, but sending a bunch of like clonal parts up. And, and these, these ramets emerge from the shared root network, appearing as many different individuals, though they all share the same root system and the same genetic makeup. So it's just one plant sometimes. Another prunus species, the cherry. Prunus also which also acts as an early inhabitant of disturbed, clear air, cleared areas, is known to accumulate nitrogen, potassium, magnesium, along with other nutrients. And since it has that short lifespan of about 20 to 30 years, it then breaks down and returns these nutrients to the soil, which can now support more diverse life. It's created shade and new New territory uh, catches water, helps prevent erosion. So this this plant, this early maneuvering plant comes in, breaks through the deep, hard, compact soils, grows lots, creates lots of fruit, draws in birds. They drop seed, they drop scat, uh, other animals that come in and just like creates environment, creates hospitable environments and invites things in. What a beautiful plant! What a beautiful ecosystem function! And not only that, I've been observing areas um, where where I work where the choke cherry has been growing quicker and spreading faster than the common buckthorn, Ramnus cathartica, and it takes up that space and it doesn't let it go. And I feel like this this could be an area of future research um, in quelling the spread of buckthorn on Turtle Island and, and throughout North America. So, like this is this is it. Could this plant, could the choke cherry, be on the forefront of quelling buckthorn, as some might? Or like I've been trying to plant with the black walnuts. Interesting stuff. I want to learn more about that and ask more researchers about that. Propagation: the choke cherry can be grown from seed, either by direct sowing in the fall or by cold stratification at one or three, one to three degrees Celsius for three months. And then sown in spring they can also be propagated by the root suckers you dig them up and plant them and the younger saplings transplant readily when you dig them up in the spring and they seem to the chokecherry seems to sprout prolifically uh, when it from from cut or fire damaged stumps so you know, if something rolls through real quick a fire or or cleared area they're just like no problem we'll keep going because a lot of the time, that root system that goes so deep can come back and emerge. It's awesome. Awesome. Resilience. Resilience and regrowth. Ugh, what a plant. Ecological interactions. Choke cherries have many, many connections with the wild, wide, wider world around them. And I want to outline a couple of them. One being black knot, black knot fungus. Um, Apiosparina morbosa. Apiosporina morbosa. It used to have another genus name, but I think that's changed. It's changed now to the Apiosporina. And it looks like, what is black fungus? It looks like scat got stuck on a twig while an animal was trying to eat the cherries. So imagine a raccoon's crawling along the twigs and somehow it's managing to reach those far out ones, but then it deposits its scat and somehow wraps around the twig. And so you get this black mass on the twig. And that's kind of what it looks like. The texture along the surface of the fungal growth appears rough, but a very fine kind of rough, similar to a fine grade sandpaper. The fungal spores spread in the spring, landing on new growth and then getting in under the bark. Once the infection starts to grow, a gall appears in the area. This gall is generally the same color as the plant tissue. The fungus then grows within the gall and the galls start to get bigger by the following spring. The fungus then bursts out, bursts out, splitting the bark. The fungus initially has a kind of light brown to olive greenish puky color, but then turns black and brittle as it ages. Uh, the fungus ends up girdling the branch and the limb dies. These fungal knots can become home to some insects, especially the peach tree borer moth, and the fungus doesn't really kill the tree but can lead to windbreak due to the weakened limbs and can hinder fruit production if the infection is extensive enough and i keep reading that over and over again that it doesn't kill the tree but it can lead to problems um but i i i've heard that um well i just want to get into this other fact that i didn't write in this this notes here that uh some folks used to think that the insects were the cause of the growth of the black knot fungus because they lived within it and they thought maybe that was a gall of the insects but it's it's actually a fungus um, I've identified cherries and other members of the prunus genus using this fungal infection as a clue. So like when you're walking through the forest and you're pretty far away from a shrub, it's wintertime, there's no leaves, there's no fruit, there's no flowers. Boom, you see the black knot fungus, you can be like prunus, and you just know the genus because it only attacks the prunus genus. And uh black knot is unlikely to kill these wild choke cherries, but I've read that it may be more harmful to the cultivated Schubert variety of black cherry or of, of choke cherry, the Schubert variety of choke cherry. So something to look out for. I don't know the Schubert variety. Luckily, mostly what's around here is the wild. I shouldn't say luckily; it's just what we have. So maybe it's not as harmed by the black knot as that Schubert species is. And you know the the the. the origin of this research was observing the eastern tent caterpillar so let's talk about that. And the eastern tent caterpillar Malacosoma americanum often infects the shrubs and, and, and signs of an insect can be found year-round the egg masses are laid by midsummer by the adult female moth uh, she's hairy looking light brown um, there are anti and post lines that go across her, her wings and they're cream colored along the forewings. wings um, she's about 15 to 24 millimeters long flies in late spring to the latter half of summer and these egg masses that they lay oh my gosh they're beautiful they they contain between 150 to 400 eggs but usually more like 200 the female seems to excrete this brown foamy mass, which hardens into this beautiful water-resistant varnish where the eggs overwinter. Um, man, these, these these beautiful little egg masses look like jeweled armbands or, or, or wristbands that you would give someone as a gift. They're so lovely to look at. Um, and they, they they shine kind of gold or bronze. I'm not sure which one. I'm not too familiar with either. But they're lovely, and I like looking at them. Um, I've read that the first instar of the caterpillar develops within the egg during the rest of that warm season and then over winters inside the egg. And then the caterpillars hatch from these egg cases in the first few warm days of spring. And that's about nine months after they are originally laid, so... Similar to human physiology, I guess. Not really. Um, then they begin feeding on buds and newly emerging leaves of their hosts. And it seems like a week after hatching is when they start building that webby nest in the crotch of the host tree, where they congregate in that webby nest and continue feeding, defecating, growing, and molting. And if you check out these eggie or these webby nests. They're really strong. I've stroked them and looked at them carefully and they're full of scat and full of uh, I don't know, is it still an exuvier if it comes from a caterpillar? Like the the, the forms, the former instars, their, their, their skin that they sort of hatched out of, that they molted. And they're really neat to look at and explore. After about six week, six weeks, they begin a pupation process which lasts another three weeks. And then when the adults emerge later in, in midsummer, they mate, they lay more eggs on the preferred host plants, such as uh, Prunus virginiana, the chokecherry, and then that cycle continues all over again. So I, I'm, I'm indebted to the Eastern Tud caterpillar for, for piquing my interest and getting me focusing on the host, on the chokecherry. And then there's this other one that I've been seeing a lot lately. It's this. Chokecherry finger gall mite. And it just looks like, if you know what a a hackberry nipple gall is, it's like a, a this leaf gall, this little club-shaped leaf gall. I'll read about it. Um, and and I see them a lot, and I've, I was wondering what that was, so I ended up looking it up. But it's the Chokecherry finger gall mite. So it's a mite uh, in the, I think it's along with the arachnids, eight legs, and emarginatae is a tiny mite, member of the Aerofidae family, which nibbles on the chokecherry leaves. This interaction between the saliva of the mite and the chemical in the leaves create tiny club-shaped growth on the upper side of the leaf. The female then enters the gall and lays between 50 to 60 eggs in these tiny little galls. The gall then splits later in the season. The males and females mate. And then the females overwinter in the older buds near the base of the branches, so the males all die off over winter, but the, fem- the, the oh, before winter, and the females overwinter in those buds. The galls that create these mites uh, may become simultaneously occupied by another mite, Arifis Uh Do they fight it out? Do the Arifis prudensae predate on the Arifis emarginatae? Um, those first club club galls, those finger gall mites, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I couldn't get access to the paper, but there's a link to the paper on the website. So if you want to look it up and you've got access, check it out. Um, they can found, be found the E. Mar- e. marginata, the erophis marginata. The e. marginata uh, can be found the American plum, Canada plum, European plum, sand cherry, bitter cherry, and the choke cherries. And the galls the develop uh, April to July. And I saw pictures of these uh, eryphus marginatae. And the mite is a robust, worm-like, whitish or yellowish brown that measures about 240 microns long. That's tiny. That's really small. So unless you have access to an electron microscope, we aren't going to see one. So at least we can check out the galls. So go check out those galls. And here's one that I haven't paid attention to or I haven't seen and I'd like to and it's a cherry leaf spot. It causes small purple spots in the leaves and later as the spots turn brown they separate from the green tissue and they drop off leaving a shot hole like a like shotgun shot went through the leaves. Eventually affected leaf turns yellow and falls off and uh, the Blumarellia japaei. The cherry leaf spot causes small purple spots. Oh, pardon me, I already read that part. And they left, and eventually the infected leaf turns yellow and falls off. And then not only these fungi, these 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 tiny insects, but there's the larger animal kingdom also have relationship with the choke cherries. And here's a short list of bird species who feed on the choke cherries in southern Ontario. Rough grouse, wild turkey, eastern bluebird, northern cardinal, great catbird, American crow, northern flicker, great crested flycatcher, rose-breasted grosbeak, blue jay, eastern kingbird, Baltimore Orioles, American robin, yellow-bellied sapsucker, white-throated sparrow, European starling, scarlet tanager, wood thrush, veery, eastern towhee, red-eyed vireo, cedar waxwing, hairy pileated, red-bellied woodpeckers. <gasps> yes. Okay. So that's just some of the birds. There's still more. My gosh. Everybody loves this. Some mammals who feed on the chokecherries in Southern Ontario are the black bear, the beaver, the red fox, snowshoe hare, opossum, eastern cottontail, raccoon, striped skunk, gray and red squirrels, eastern chipmunk, the peromyscus mice, meadow vole, white-tailed deer, and the moose a little bit up north from here, but they're there feeding on the chokecherries. Many small mammals will hoard the prunus virginiana seeds, allowing potentially com- poisonous compounds to deteriorate over time and then they eat them and i haven't seen this behavior with the with the uh, choke cherries necessarily maybe i have but i'll get into that in a second but i have seen it on on domestic cherries on sweet cherries i remember being at the checking at this cherry tree at ignatius uh farm here in guelph and at the base of the tree there's all these beautiful fruit with a slice through the middle, and none of the seeds. And it was obviously a mouse that was going in and collecting the seeds and taking them out. And any any zoonotic disease specialist would tell you never, ever, ever, ever do this. But I just sat there eating all these beautiful plucked seed cherries, seeded, de cherries. It was lovely. It's like, yeah, I don't need the seed. I just want the fruit. So that was great. And why I say I don't think I've ever seen this chokecherry, but maybe I have, is a few weeks ago, I guess it was March now, so I guess a while ago, maybe even January, I was out with a crew, and we were tracking, we were looking around, and we were looking at the base of these trees, and there was a whole bunch of seeds at the base of this huge maple in this sort of old-growth maple beech forest, and they all looked like chokecherry seeds. I don't think they were black cherry; they could have been, but they're definitely a prunus seed at the base of the tree. And it was pretty amazing to see that that someone was hoarding all these seeds. Oh my gosh! I just I just got a picture. It was in January when we figured it out, but it must have been like August or something when we noticed when we actually found the seeds because we had gone back to that place. Sorry to get that information mixed up. It's all coming back. It's all coming back. Okay. Um as for the insects that visit the shrub, I'm not gonna go off on it. There's too many to lists. Go go outside and look for yourself. Take a look. Uh I just want to get into some of the edible and medicinal uses. I know it's already been like a half hour that I'm just rambling on about this. But again, I, I'm I'm almost done. And I just wanted to cover some of this because some people, this is this is maybe where you're interested in it on, on uh, edible medicinal. And I have to say that this is what first hooked me. So choke cherries are a great trailside snack. You can collect them by pulling off the main stalk, the cherries from the twig, and then pop them individually in your mouth. And suck off the fleshy outer covering. You got to spit out the pit though, as the raw pits contain that. Prussic acid, otherwise known as hydrogen cyanide, and should not be consumed. I have read of methods to remove the prussic acid, but never attempted it. So I don't know how effective it is, and I won't write about it. But the leaves and the twigs also contain prussic acid, so they should be avoided in large quantities. But a lot of, a lot of uh, modern books, maybe some of the older books say, don't touch it, don't touch it. But a lot of modern books say, hey, wait. Look, if we if we process it in nice ways, we're not taking too much and we're taking it at the right time of year, it's fine. You know, after flowering, it's fine to, to process that bark, especially for like medicinal qualities, which we'll get into. Turner, Nancy J. Turner, man, I'd love to interview her someday, suggests that those with patience to remove the pits could make a delicious pie. And they're also used for jams, jellies, and syrup. And I've made a syrup uh, to good success before in the past. I thought it was a good idea. Samuel Thayer um, says that many authors disregard chokecherries as marginal, but he and I disagree. You just have to harvest them at the right time. When you harvest them early, they do have a bit of a pucker in your mouth due to the astringency of the berries. You know they constrict the tissues in the mouth, pulling out the moisture, making your mouth feel dry. But if you harvest them in late August when they're nice, dark and purple, black and lovely to look at, lovely to eat, um, not really red anymore, they tend to be sweeter. Also, a bit of like cold, a touch of cold on them will make them a little bit sweeter. And I have a friend who told me that uh, on her journey along the Bruce Trail, when she started down at like Niagara Falls, and worked her way up to Tobermory. When they started Niagara Falls, the chokecherries fruit was, was ripe. And then as they made their way up north towards Tobermory, Tobermory, they followed the chokecherry harvest. They followed the the ripeness, so they had chokecherries for the whole way. Sounds like a beautiful hike. What a way to do it. And while there are no main entries on chokecherry in most of my books dedicated to the medicinal qualities of plants, many do indicate that chokecherry is used medicinally in a similar fashion to black cherry, the prunus seratina. Though Matthew Wood in 2009 describe, describes chokecherry as singularly astringent and the black cherry as a sedative. So sometimes those are overlapped, but he describes the chokecherry as astringent, black cherry as the sedative. It is described as bitter, astringent, drying, and cooling. And those are some of the qualities attributed to the chokecherry. These qualities then make it useful in context of heat in the body, dampness, and inflammation in the body. Jared Rosenbaum states that the bark of chokecherry can be used as respiratory, relaxant, and antispasmodic, uh, something to suppress muscle spasms. And Jim McDonald, what a cool guy. He would be a neat person to interview one day. In his fantastic monograph on the Wild Cherries, writes that Prunus virginiana is a cooling sedative to lung tissue and excels when heat and irritability undermine healthy expectoration. You know, I mean, like when you can't get it out, it's, it's nice and cooling and helps move things through the body, helps get things out. Uh, craft uses of a plant, craft, like ways that people might turn the plant into like things for crafts that they're making. I'm not a really crafty guy. I don't know. But I've read from one source that the red and gray dyes can be produced from the berries and a green from the leaves and from the spring bark. But I've not yet tried this. Um, and again, I'm reading from this blog post and I've not fleshed out the section, but the additional notes, man. There's so much to say about the chokecherry. And I I just wrote quickly here, the chokecherry is a role model. How can we be in good relationship with so many different life forms, so much vast community um, and transform degraded and barren anthropogenic landscapes in preparation for new life? How can we come to a space that is degraded and in a good way that supports supports the natural function of the space on its own and supports all the community members to just go about continuing to do what they naturally do and create space for new beautiful life to come in you know there's a bit of caution to be had around this plant with the possibility of hydrocytic or anthocyanins the 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 possible depressic acid the cyanide Um, an awareness of that potential hazard, but overall this theme, the theme of the shrub, if I can assign it a theme, appears to be regeneration, repair and creating spaces for life to flourish again. Badass, you know, like how cool is that? This plant mentors us by observing them and, and watching how they move to hold space in a good way, to say to like You know, the opportunistic buckthorn is like, hey, man, chill out for a second. I got this. This is how you really feed the community. This is how you really support succession and natural development of landscapes. And I'm always looking for, for models of that in my own life, in my own human community, In communities beyond the human, where do we look for these mentors and these role models on how to do that in a good way that isn't colonial, that isn't gentrifying, that doesn't impose something from outside, but instead brings out the inherent imminence of this place revivifies re it, renews it and repairs and regenerates it. And so I'm always curious about that and what a cool shrub, what a cool plant to be learning from on how to do this right. So I wanna keep observing this, uh, keep observing the choke cherries for a long time because I think that I can learn so much by watching the choke cherry. So I'm going to be keep keep going. I'm going to be filling out this this species profile for the next few years as I learn more and just keep observing and keep watching because there's so much I don't know about, so much a lot of research don't want, don't know about. So many questions that keep coming up. I just want to see this in action. So I'm going to be watching them. One big question for me actually has been the black walnuts in the chokecherry. How well do they get along? I've been planting black walnuts recently in an open space that's been taken over by the chokecherry that's sort of holding the line against the buckthorn and the honeysuckle. And um, I've been planting walnuts around because I see that wherever the walnuts are growing, the buckthorns are dying. So I don't know if it's... Cause and effect. I don't know if it's. Yeah, I don't know what's going on. So I just want to keep observing and keep watching and instigate the growth in this small section, this small area, because I know black walnut is another species that comes into grassy areas and and open areas and helps transform it into uh, shadier areas where shade trees can start to grow and bigger forests can start to grow. And eventually those. Those black walnuts don't make it, but, you know, that takes, it takes quite a while. But they live a full and happy life and feed a ton of squirrels and, and turkeys and deer and humans all along the way. So I just want to keep watching and keep encouraging the successional growth and seeing what land restoration can look like. And how do we participate and take part? And how, how do we find these role models in these plants? So Choke Cherry, what's up? I love you. You're great. This is perfect. If you haven't gone out to find the choke cherries in your area, go out and look for them. If you know where they are, go out and pay attention to them. If you're already paying attention, just say thank you. Just say a big thank you for just being so cool. A while ago, I have to admit, someone asked if I can list out the resources that I used for the information that I talk about on the shows. There's a huge list, but I'll just name some of the books. Shrubs of Ontario uh, by James H. Soper and Margaret L. Heinberger, 1982. Botany in the Day. Uh, Edible Wild Fruits and Nuts of Canada. Forager's Harvest. Earthwise Herbal. American Wildlife and Plants. A Guide to Wildlife Food Habits. Um, if you really want it, you can email me. And I will send you this to know the land at gmail.com or you can go to the website and find it yourself because there's a list. And there's a bunch of PDFs and papers that I've also cited and websites for like the galls and the the biology and morphology of some of these insects and stuff like that. I don't have any books on that yet. Um, so, yeah, to know the www dot dot com. And I think that yeah, that's it's worth checking out the website because there's lots of information, lots of these species profiles and worth reading this over because it's probably gonna be full of information more in the coming weeks as I notice more. Also on Instagram, it's at to know the land. You can check that out there. And and I'm also like if you know stuff about choke cherries, please share them. I would love to hear about it. Email me to knowtheland at gmail.com. Tell me your chokecherry stories because every time there's a new set of eyes on something and they can relate a story, I learn more. And that's all I want. I just want to learn more about this species. So please share what you got. I think that's it. I think that's all. Oh, oh. Yeah. Before I close out the show, I just wanted to say thanks again for listening. It's great to know that there are a bunch of folks out there listening to the show, taking the time to hear me ramble on about choke cherries or whatever else. Maybe it's your first time listening. Maybe it's your steady listener. And you've been listening and checking it out for a couple of years. I keep meeting people who are listening to the show, so I appreciate that. Um, if you like what the show is all about, if it's taught you something, inspired you in some way, please consider helping me out somehow. And one of the ways you he can help out is talk to people about the show. Tell them about it. I know that there's folks all over that are doing that. And I love it. It helps. It's great. It's great. I feel I feel like that's what I want. I want I want this collective sharing space to be the show. You know, like, let's teach each other and, and learn together. And this is my little bit of input. And I'd love to hear other people's little bit of input. And the more people that know about the show, that's awesome. I appreciate that. Um, if you... Are listening to like the podcast, uh, review it. Give it a rating. Probably a good one. Hopefully a good one. I don't know. Whatever you want. But that's helpful, too. It gets more eyes on the show as well. Or if you want to, you can make a donation. And that also helps. I just heard today that someone's offering a donation. and I really appreciate it. It's really nice when folks support the show in that way, too. Um, keeps the project running. Keeps the website going. Website costs a lot. So it's just helpful if I can start to make that back and just like even break even. That'd be amazing. What a dream. Um, Yeah. And that collective support helps invest in the better show, maintaining and building a better website, upgrading the recording equipment, more time to write, more time to teach, more time to hopefully reach more folks and talk to more people about it. Yeah, it's great. So if you want to donate, that's awesome. You can learn more about donating to the show at to know the com forward slash donate. And that really helps. So thank you very much. And thanks to all the folks who've been doing it already. I love it. It's great. Yeah, now, now, now the show is done. I think that's it. That's all. Take care.